Hey everyone, and welcome to the 58th episode of the Lee McCollum Show. All right, so I got a lot of good feedback from my episode with Mr. Deming, especially from people who were students of his, and I really enjoyed it. I would recommend going back and listening to that episode because Mr. Deming was my teacher back in high school. He was a public school teacher, and he was also a libertarian, which was pretty awesome, and I'm very lucky for that. But I decided to bring him on since it's the fourth and talk about the Declaration of Independence, especially since he's the person who kind of taught me about the principles behind it. We actually just read through the Declaration and kind of analyze it, specifically the second paragraph, which is arguably the most important part where it defines the principles that undergird the Constitution and should inform the Constitution, which is something that we try to get into. But as you'll see, the interview was actually cut off short. I'm not going to say that it was my assigned FBI agent or anything like that, but but I did have some tech issues and I didn't catch the last thing we were going to talk about. That being said, we got pretty deep into some questions of rights, sovereignty, and the consent of the governed. And most importantly, we got into the conversation of whether or not we have a right of revolution, especially since Independence Day really is a celebration of seceding from Britain and revolting. I hope you enjoy this podcast. It was a very fun one to record and definitely give me some feedback. And remember to subscribe to me on YouTube, Apple Podcast and Spotify. And here's Mr. Deming. All right. So I have Mr. Deming back with me. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed that episode. I had a few people retweeting it on Twitter. and But yeah, I, I figured that I would bring Mr. Deming on and talk about the Declaration of Independence since July 4th is coming up. Um, you have your Declaration of Independence with, with you. Uh, why don't you just read and let's analyze it? Okay. Let's do that. So the money part, as far as I'm concerned, has always been the second paragraph really where it starts, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So uh, I'd like to stop there and talk briefly about some of the points that we, if that's okay, is it, if that's a good format for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's so much just within the first little part right there too, even self-evident. Um, if if you just want to explain what you think um, is so important about, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I think there's a lot just within that little part. Sure is. And particularly when you, uh, when you understand who the author is, Thomas Jefferson, the slave owner. And so the self-evident part, I think, is just pretty easy to, to define as obvious. It's pretty obvious, I think. Um, these truths are obvious, and they should be obvious to everybody, uh, even though they aren't in the day. And one of the reasons why I thought this would be a pretty good thing to talk about, considering July 4th is coming up, is that I don't think a lot of people really even know what the text of the Declaration says and how important it is. So... Uh, what's your take on self-evident? Well, I mean, I think that especially with understanding that Jefferson has read up on natural law and natural rights and stuff like that, I think that it would really have to do with the relationship between individuals and the dignity that I think a lot of the founders thought that we owed other people. Um, and I think it's self-evident in the natural laws that they believed were attainable through reason. Yeah, I think it's a good take, but uh, I do I do think that it's not just evident within the natural law. It's evident, period. It's obvious to everybody, period. Uh, 
with and without insider or outside of the natural law. And so I think it's universal in that regard. So all men are created equal. Uh, did Jefferson mean all men? Did he, did he mean to exclude uh, women there? I mean, that's, that's obviously an argument for our time uh, today. I don't know, did he? Yeah, so I think that the way that men is spoken of in a lot of these texts is uh, to encapsulate both men and women. Um, that obviously they will they will use his argument or him owning slaves to say that he couldn't have meant all men. Um, but it's pretty clear in his writings about slavery, even at this time, I would say that I think that him being familiar with these texts as well as biblical texts and just the conversations that he has it's pretty clear that he thinks that all men have this the imago day right like they have the image of god or something like that um when, when you read jefferson that seems to be pretty clear throughout okay and so men refers to humankind yeah okay uh, I think there's some merit in that, obviously. So can a person who believed that all humankind is equal hold slaves? It's a very good question. Um, <laughs> and I mean, like a lot of people were, a lot of people like to bring up his treatment of his slaves too. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I personally don't know much about it, but I know that he got one of them pregnant and um, there's a lot there but when when you read his writings I don't know the exact quote but he has something along the lines of saying if there is a god um, if I think you know the quote that I'm talking about yeah so it's an interesting quote he says uh, paraphrased I fear uh, that God is a just God so because if God is just, uh, Jefferson's a big trouble. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think he, he would be. Now, uh, my understanding, and I used to compare Washington and Jefferson in class all the time, that Jefferson believed, and again, this is my understanding, Jefferson believed that um, his slaves couldn't manage on their own. And that he was doing them a favor by keeping them in slavery because he didn't think they could, they could uh, operate outside of, you know, his benevolence. And so he did not free his slaves uh, on his death as well. Whereas George Washington believed the same thing, but in order to keep the slaves from be being a uh, burden on his estate, freedom, so I think when people say George Washington freed some of his slaves or some of the slaves in his will, uh, if you look deeper at it, you'll see that that wasn't the best thing maybe for him to do under uh, considering how he felt about them. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he also, I think he also, uh, Jefferson also said something about it's slavery's like having a tiger by the tail. You, you, you kind of want to let him go, but you can't. 
Uh, something else I think is missed about Jefferson and slavery is that he worked uh, pretty hard in the Virginia legislature to emancipate slaves and realized that he, that the time wasn't right, that he would never do that, never be able to do that. And so get that passed. Uh, and so he gave up. Now, uh, I'm, I'm an admirer of Jefferson, so I've got some bias there, but uh, I think you can see that he wasn't the you know, completely evil slave holder that most people today consider him. So anyway, that's, that's that. I, I'm wondering other, any other quotes? I, I know that we were talking about it and there was kind of this discussion of whether or not they could have freed them from the start of the country. And the idea was that they couldn't have united everyone if they did. Right. So I think it was, I think the question is, um, I think there were some, there were some folks who uh, thought uh, slavery was evil even in those days and wanted to get rid of slavery. And anyone who believed that uh, knew that there was no way that they would have brought the Southern, Southern states into the union. Now, I think the argument can be made that maybe you know, the moral thing would have been to form a union uh, without those slave-owning states, if in fact it was that big of an issue for you. But since uh, keeping those folks in uh, the convention and eventually ratifying the constitution, uniting the country, uh, that, you know, that's what they decided to do finally. So, uh, yeah, unity that, was yeah. more important than than uh, getting rid of slavery yeah. or union. Yeah, that's that's very interesting when um, kind of taken in parallel with conversations about the Civil War, I think, too. Mm -hmm. um, and and yeah. what was priority there? Because, I mean, it's it's the same idea. I think that there, there were even conversations. I know um, a lot of abolitionists were talking about seceding from the north or I mean, from the South, because they, they were slave owners. Um, and I know that, I think it was William Lloyd Garrison and uh, Lysander Spooner. There were a few of them who advocated that. Uh, so it's very interesting just looking at those parallels there. Yeah, it is. It's the same argument, unity yeah. or slavery. You know, and uh, would the Northern states, uh, non-slave holding slave states, would they have uh, given up unity in either case uh, for slavery? You know, uh, on balance, uh, they decided, I don't think they decided uh, in either case, either in the revolution, the constitution or in the civil war, that slavery was the most important thing until Lincoln made that in, uh, you know, that the goal in the uh, middle of the war. So I think there's a lot of people outside of Lincoln's circle that would have just let, allowed the South to go. It just wasn't worth it to them. And in fact, those people were called bitter enders, I think. So anyway, that's kind of off track, but yeah. um, sure. So we've gotten the first line in. Uh, I don't know if we've completely finished there. So no, um, I, I really enjoy the next part, if, if you want to read it. Uh, 
Uh, sure, all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, that's uh, there's a lot there too. Yeah. So my my question is who um who do you take to be? Are are they referencing the Christian God there? Yes, they are. Even though much has been made that um, Jefferson and a lot of the founders were deists, and uh, but yeah, Christian God, and I don't think that was by accident. Uh, virtually every word in here was parsed by the uh, committee headed by Jefferson that wrote this, and so they they left that in there for sure. I. I and I think that one of the reasons why is so that you can get a non-parliamentary or legislative source for rights. So if, if you can get your rights from God and that those are unalienable rights, then no parliament, no legislature, no power on earth can take them from you. And I think that was done deliberately, uh, obviously, that... Uh, they're endowed by their creator, yeah. so for sure. Now, uh, again, excuse me. So I think that Jefferson was also brilliant in this, that uh, and whether it was his idea or not, I don't know. But look at it. It, it just doesn't say God, right? It doesn't say that. It says their creator. So whoever their creator is gave them that. So, if, you know, it left room, whether it was, this was deliberate, like I said, is a different question. But it left room for uh, different uh, understandings of God. So. Yeah, that is very smart. Um, and and <laughs> out of that, though, what you just mentioned about like the inalienable rights um, comes so many conversations. Like especially and most importantly, probably, is the distinction between negative and positive rights. I think, um, and <laughs> whether or not the absence of the parliament, the parliamentary um, process of rights allows positive rights, um, if, or if that is the source of positive rights, I guess. Um, and if these rights come from your creator, whether or not you would have the right to another person's property, which I think, in essence, positive rights suggest. Right. So, it depends on your definition of positive rights, really, uh, negative rights. It, it depends on how you define those. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure, personally, there are any positive rights. I think rights are, uh, are things that prevent government from doing something bad to you, like stealing your property, you know, or uh, spying on you. Um, so while today we are inundated with the idea of positive rights, I'm not sure there any, any of those exist. So unable rights, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So uh, I think those are uh, negative rights in the, in the sense that the government is prevented from interfering with life, liberty, or your pursuit of happiness. And I think what's 
interesting about it is that those things in themselves in themselves and like also when, when you look at um the original text what jefferson originally considered which was a, a quote by Locke, which was life liberty and property so those things and pursuit of happiness included just set up necessary constraints on actions and and there are certain barriers and that defines freedom um every so like there's there's this question of whether or not you can have the freedom to enslave somebody like if you're if you're talking about um how you're a lover of freedom or liberty one of the main objections you might get is well do you have the freedom to do x and it's typically a freedom to you know infringe someone else's rights and inherent in this definition that's laid out of freedom is the idea that that wouldn't be freedom like no you don't have the freedom to infringe someone else's rights because the constraints of freedom are defined here and once you do that you're no longer within the realm of it right yeah that's exactly right and it's brilliant in that as, as well and i think that's something that's missed so um, people's right today to health care depends on the government taking money from me without my consent yeah. <laughs> that's a perfect example of of uh, the the uh, importance we placed on positive rights today that I don't think exists or should exist. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if your rights are yeah, if your rights are inalienable, um, and you have a life right to life uh, and liberty, uh, pursuit of happiness. So how can someone else's rights supersede mine uh, to those things? So yeah. Anyway. There, there is another conversation about where pursuit of happiness comes from. And it's interesting. I think it actually comes from Locke and they capitalize happiness. Um, and, and Locke's conception of happiness was an infinite kind. It was of the highest kind, which I find interesting. So it's not just like this Epicurean idea, but also he he was pretty clear in his conception that no one could define what happiness was for another person. Um, so in this part right here, there's just so much philosophy behind all of this. Um, but yeah, if you want to keep reading, that would be awesome. Okay. So that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Uh, so I, I want to finish because I think that's that sentence, because I think that's, uh, that's the important part. Okay, so uh, a lot of people stop right there. That when any, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So. Uh, it, it's it's beautiful, really. It's, it's elegant. So that to secure these rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's why governments are instituted. That's it. It's yeah. it's not to make sure you have enough uh, food, or it's not it's not to make sure that you have uh, you know, universal basic income or uh, anything else. It's there 
government's there to secure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for each individual. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting. Um, we get a concept of sovereignty here. The idea that sovereignty doesn't come like it's like not a divine right that an individual or a king possesses, um, but that governments are instituted among men derived Way, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So it's like we get this concept of subsidiarity right there. Mm -hmm. For sure. The men and and men is capitalized right there, interestingly. Um, that is where government derives its powers. So we get this concept that, that individuals possess this sovereignty and sovereignty moves upward from there right so uh, we've we've had quite a few discussions about consent over the years haven't we yes so uh i i love the lysander spooner and i refer to him all the time and you know he said he never he never consented to any of it and so can we be held liable for a document uh, that you and I never consented to? And the answer is no. You know, so uh, one of the points I like to bring up when we talk about this part is that uh, Jefferson uh, believed that one generation should not impose its ruling documents on the next. And so I think he had a formula 19 or 20 years and they had a turn that over and revisit the constitution. I think it's a great idea in, in a lot of ways. Now, um, I don't know if you knew this, but Montana's constitution uh, rewritten in 1972 has a provision so that the people can vote and must vote every 20 years, whether or not to continue the old constitution or to rewrite it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting though the conversation about whether or not that's expressed enough for lysander spooner because it's it's still you you haven't consented to that system but right i i think what's important here is that we know that thomas jefferson read a lot of Locke, and this was inspired by Locke, and we get the flaws of his thinking here um because the conversation about whether or not you needed consent came up, but his consent is a very weak kind. Um, he said it was either tacit. So the, the different kinds are tacit, expressed, or I think it's imputed. And that's Rousseau, I believe. So Rousseau believed that it was inherent to you, that just based off of our relationship and based off of our nature, we've consented, which is terrifying to me. And I can just disregard that. Um, but the idea of whether or not you tacitly consent by using roads, for instance, that, that is how Locke justified this consent of the governed. So if you use public property, if you use any of these things or what is called public property, um, you have consented to that system where Lysander Spooner would say that that's, that doesn't go far enough because nowhere else in society do you do this? Another reason I like Spooner. Yeah, you always sign a contract. Right. 
but you yeah. always do. But do you have, do you have another, um, anything else on that point? Uh, no, no, I, I think we better move on to the incendiary parts. <laughs> All right. And probably relevant parts for everyone. Um, today for sure this weekend yeah and looking back at 2020 considering how certain people acted um <laughs> that might not actually agree with what we're reading right now um so yeah that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So what are your thoughts there? <laughs> so uh, getting ready for the national competition, I always caution the kids, you better be careful what you say. You may believe in the right of revolution but if you say the word revolution, you know, the judges are going to discount you as uh, not being a serious person. But would they, if Jefferson was in front of them, would they question Thomas Jefferson's view that the right of revolution is, is uh, an, an alienable right? He makes it pretty clear there. And he says, it is the right of the people to alter abolish it. And, and Look at the context that he uses. Uh, that when any ever, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, which is to secure the rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, it is right of the people all to abolish. Period. <laughs> yeah. So it would have been fun to see Thomas Jefferson sit in front of those national judges, especially some of the smug ones and say, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a revolution right now, throwing off uh, an unjust government, the shackles of this unjust government. We're doing it by force. What do you say to that? <laughs> so, well, you know, <laughs> it's interesting because the question of what that threshold is came up a lot in the competitions. And I would always ask, right. what is that threshold? And he actually expresses it right here. And you and you share, or you've told me about this before, um, what you think the threshold is. So, do you want to explain your thoughts? I don't know if you want to come, well, but <laughs> yeah, I'm actually kind of eager to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, pretty clearly, uh, and this is what a lot of people miss. I think a lot of people, even scholars, miss. And maybe they do that deliberately too, but they miss this point that. Whenever any form of government, not just our government, any form of government becomes destructive of the ends of preserving life, liberty, and property is right of the people to alter and abolish it. So the second your government begins to work against those rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that, that's the trigger, period. It can't be any other way. So, so if it's any other way, then we don't really believe in the, in the principles that Jefferson laid out in this declaration. And if we don't believe in the, in the principles that Jefferson laid out in the declaration, then anything goes, right? So we have a government today that thinks that it can, and apparently it can, 
uh, lock us down for 18 months, make us wear face coverings that everybody knows don't do anything. You know, and now they're, they're thinking about COVID passports and they're thinking about uh, forcing you to take uh, an experimental injection. If that isn't a violation of those rights, I don't know what is. Right, so uh, we've we've long passed the trigger, in my opinion. Yeah, long it, passed. It's it's interesting here how the the idea that let me see laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So here we get kind of just a little thread of the idea of consent here again, and and that it comes from the people. And, it, and it's interesting in our conversations um, about express consent and libertarianism and all of these ideas, it's, it seems that there's an element of the voluntary nature in here too, where they would be able to associate with whatever you think, because it says shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, that these people have liberty to associate with whatever system they think will best do that. To associate and create, if, if need be, a yeah. system that will work in their favor, where, uh, you know, before. Um, so imagine where they were at that time in 1776, imagine where they were. Uh, I think it can be argued that they, uh, the founders, weren't as uh, pressured by bad government as we are. I think they had less to complain about than we do. That's right. And, and I don't think we'll get there, but people can actually read at the end of the declaration all of the complaints they had. So there's another part of the text that's coming up that I know you're very interested in. And I think it has a little to do with what the nature of a revolution would look like. And it, it might not really flesh it out as much, but when the text says prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. Um, do you think that we should always resort to other efforts first, like decentralization and, and nullification efforts? And if those nullification efforts are working, like in Montana, where we become a sanctuary gun state or you know, a marijuana state and all of these things. And we, we have shown that these powers are proved proving to work. Do you think that revolution in another sense should be still in our cards? Do you mean, well, okay, let me answer it this way. So I think the, the absolute best way is, you know, to fight a government that's completely out of control as I think ours is, is getting worse and exponentially worse by the month uh, is nullification. It's the only way, it's the only merciful way because it, if the states will stand up to the national government as they are, and I'm dang proud of them, especially Montana for that, then there's no need for um, force of arms. And it would have to get pretty awful for people today to take up arms against the government. But our 
ancestors did. Yeah. You know, George Washington took up arms against his government. That was treason. And had they lost, uh, I doubt that uh, the leaders of the revolution would have survived. Pretty sure they've been hanged. And so I, I do think that, you know, we celebrate July 4th as our Independence Day. But in fact, it, it was in the middle of a bloody war to free ourselves from an oppressive government, which only about maybe a third, uh, excuse me, about two thirds of the country um, agreed with. There are a lot of loyalists still in, in the American colonies. So anyway, uh, yeah, I think there's, unfortunately, there may have to be in the future a time for that. Yeah. You know, I know that's heresy, but, you know, what, what's the al alternative? The alternative is uh, slavery. And I, I'm not going to live a slave. So, yeah, and I, I think that people really do have to ask themselves whether or not they think that the revolution was justified, like our revolution that we celebrate, if they start to ask that question. And I mean, one of my professors, surprisingly, um, I, I had a really great professor this last year, asked that same question. He's like, we're reading about all of these revolutions in this class, but have you ever thought about ours? Because you celebrate it, but when you talk about these other ones, what do you think? So I, mean, I think that those are legitimate questions, um, but I think that it really, it's kind of like a reverse subsidiarity thing where like the test must be if your state isn't doing it, if your locality isn't doing it, like if they aren't safeguarding the individual in some sense, then it really, the responsibility lays on the individual then. So if the national government is oppressing you um, and the state isn't kicking back, I think that that's the test there. And, and right now, luckily, we are in a situation where the state is doing exactly where it needs to, exactly yeah. what to do. I'll just imagine living in some of the lockdown states or some of the states that are frankly crazy. I mean, California, they're, they're absolutely crazy. Uh, Oregon, Portland, Oregon is, as I understand it, a nightmare. Imagine living there and having the views that you and I have. That there's no way that I could live in that in that environment, you know. And so, uh, what's your option? Yeah. Your option there, your only option there, considering the fact that you're going to be outnumbered, uh, is to leave. And, uh, in our country, I, I'm not willing to leave. I mean, things would have to get pretty bad. I, I'd, uh, I'd move around the country if I had to, um, you know, to find freedom, uh, but I wouldn't want to leave. Uh, but if that was an option, if it came to that, I would, I think a lot of people would too. Yeah. Uh, so the very last resort would be to take up arms. And, and right there was a, perfect argument for decentralization. Whereas if there is a one size fits all solution across the entire country, then you really don't have much options. Like th these people who say, oh, well, if you don't like this country, just leave. I mean, that, that's not reasonable for a lot of people in the United States right now.
but if, if the argument is if, if you don't like this city, leave, that makes a lot more sense. It does make a lot more sense. And uh, that's why I think the declaration is so important. If our government is set up to protect our rights, and if uh, we have uh, philosophical permission to change the government if they refuse to do that, which we do through Thomas Jefferson's words here, then, uh, then that's, that's really the option. That's what we have to do. Saying just leave uh, if, if these rights are being taken away, uh, it violates the philosophy that Thomas Jefferson was uh, advocating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just this entire conversation of what constitutes a revolution, like I think that here we really do get the idea that Ron Paul kind of argued for that there can be a revolution through ideas and there can be a revolution through nullification. And we know that uh, the presidency was considered, you know, a peaceful revolution, though probably not as peaceful considering how much power it has. But it's just the idea that that really ideas and and all these other options, I think, should be considered in what Jefferson is saying right now. But there's one more part that I think you wanted to get to that is pretty important. Um, if you want to read it, because it's pretty powerful, just talking about the constraints and the threshold. Um, right. So um, prudence indeed, uh, Jefferson's words, prudence indeed will dictate the government's long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed, disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they're accustomed. And so I think uh, we've been taking it for a while. You know, the people who love liberty have been saying, well, you know, we'll work within the system, we'll get the right people, uh, vote the right people in, we'll uh, hope for the Supreme Court to save us on and on and on. Um, I think there will come an end point if the states don't step in if, uh, and take back some of the powers that have been either given up voluntarily, involuntarily. We talked about last time, you know, what uh, Montana has had to go through over the course of uh, our history uh, dealing with the federal government. Now, I think people take it. We'll take it for a while, but there's going to be an endpoint. After a while, after this, uh, while evils are sufferable, when they become insufferable, then uh, that will be the time. Yeah, and there's a certain sense in which um, <clears throat> this is experienced on both the left and the right, or libertarians or independents, that we're seeing this conversation on the left as well um, with the protests. They, there's a certain sect that says, we don't want revolution at all. And that's almost like within the Overton window. Like people say that on TV. They say, no, no reform, abolition. Like that's within the, the window for certain people. Um, so it's very interesting that that conversation is happening and, and there are protests throughout the streets and um, buildings being burned and private buildings being burned and then there's also um the MAGA insurrectionists 
um, and how completely different that conversation was. Um, and, and what I find interesting in a lot of the conversation was that it seems that at least in the conversations people have around what protests are and like these massive protests is implied that there is a certain point at which that would be justified. And I don't think that people, at least those people who are saying that the insurrectionists were insurrectionists or whatever, are willing to discount that. I think that they still say that as, at a certain point, there would be a point where that would be justified, or at least entering into a public facility and protesting, because obviously they weren't doing anything other than just walking in and like putting their feet up on desks. Like that's, but still, I, I, I've always found interesting since that day that I haven't heard someone totally discount the fact that there might be a point at which this happens. And it's evident through our foreign policy. These people who were arguing it were saying, well, at the same time, they're advocating for toppling regimes because they understand, you know, that in a certain sense, even though we might not like, you know, the violation of their sovereignty in these foreign countries, that they at least understand there is a certain point where it's necessary. So I, that, that's something that I've been thinking about um, just because like Dave Smith always had this quote, like, what is a protest? What is the essence of a protest? Is it really just people are getting out there and, you know, just gathering together or is it that there's kind of a threat behind it? And, and certain people who might not like these conversations we're having like to protest a lot. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, there's a lot there. Uh, let me just, uh, so I think uh, going back to an earlier point, there's there's an endpoint. Uh, people only take so much, and then what they decide to do after that, you know, that's going to be up to obviously every individual. Uh, but uh, the question is, do do people have a right to um, change their government? Do they have the, the right to withdraw their consent? And the answer to that has both those questions has to be yes. It has to be. Otherwise, the system breaks down. And here's how it breaks down. You know, if you can't, then what can't your government do to you? The answer is nothing. That there, if, if you don't have recourse through what Thomas Jefferson was talking about, uh, the right of revolution, if you don't have recourse, then the government can do anything you want to you. That's essentially the end point, you know? And so uh, I, I think nobody in their right mind would advocate that. Well, the government's not gonna do any bad to you. Oh yeah? You know, <laughs> ask those people who were uh, uh, kept from ivermectin and uh, vitamin D and hydroxychloroquine, you know, tell those people. You know, if in fact, hundreds of thousands of people died of COVID, they could have been saved by these uh, therapies, uh, especially uh, hydroxychloroquine. Then your government can in fact kill you and you got no recourse. So we're, we're kind of at an end point here, I think in, in America today. And if people ever figure out that they have had these therapies hidden deliberately from them when people knew better, 
uh, as far as I can see, that is cause. That's that's cause, right? So, yeah, there was a study I saw even before COVID talking about the excess deaths that occur because of the FDA approval process, and just because the lack of access to certain cancer treatments because they're going through ten year process that the government doesn't think that you have the ability to consent to taking a drug that I mean like like what's the risk you're you're gonna die like if you're already on your deathbed why not and and uh luckily I think Trump did pass the light to, or the right to try act but I'm not sure where that's at right now um yeah, I don't either so but yeah I think I think everything you said right there is is very true and important so uh something else I kind of wanted to bring up um the insanity of calling this uh, January 6th an insurrection is, I think it's deliberate. I really do. Uh, I, I believe right to the ground that this is a, a way for uh, the government to um, categorize people like me uh, in, in uh, domestic terrorists as domestic terrorists. And this conversation we're ha having here, I know uh, would be a red flag for a lot of people, uh, a lot of people in the government, you know, because they, they believe that it's treason to fight for the rights that we are guaranteed both in the Declaration and the Constitution. Now, when those people can be called domestic terrorists, the government is completely out of control. And they might themselves be domestic terrorists. Um, no, they're the, yeah, absolutely. They're the one. They are the uh, domestic terrorists. In fact, uh, I, I think the military is even getting uh, at least the reports are that they're getting stripped of people who who are conservative, you know, MAGA supporters, and uh, they're trying to get rid of those people, or at least to uh, indoctrinate them you know, into the right way of thinking. Well, I, I, I know that's deliberate. I mean, they've admitted it. They want to get rid of those extremists, the extremists that, you know, believe in the constitution. <laughs> they, they actually released a new definition of what a domestic terrorist is. And it included things like keeping people captive, kidnapping them, coercing them, making them do something against their, consent and and i'm paraphrasing but i saw this picture that was highlighting uh, it was the white house website all right and that's where the recording just decides to shut off um you only miss about like five minutes of recording afterwards so i might have mr deming come back for a part two though i'm not entirely sure but he definitely will be back on the podcast i hope you enjoyed this one it was really fun for me remember to subscribe to me on apple Podcasts, youtube and spotify and come back next time Thanks.